Appreciate it. Um, I can think of a dozen. I was actually doing it. I was thinking of a dozen reasons uh, to be happy to be here. To, to be with Matt is a, a big one. Uh, I love you, Matt. I love your family. And I, I love this church because of it. So I don't really know you uh, that well. I know Matt well enough to know that he's a sinner uh, in need of grace uh, and that he's a pastor who labors well. And uh, God, you, you guys need to be nice to Matt. Be nice to Matt. And I can say that because I'm a pastor who wishes people would say that at my church. Like, hey, be nice to Todd. Another reason that I'm really authentically happy to be here is because of what's already happened in this worship service. uh, In that the songs that you guys proclaimed were Jesus-oriented. And um, when I first moved to town, which we moved here in 2014... One of the first things we did to, to begin our church planning effort was to sort of go and visit other churches. And I was super shocked and disappointed at how there was really a lack of gospel clarity, a lack of Jesus-focused. It was a, uh, a Where's Waldo, I would refer to. I don't know if you can catch that reference, but Where's Waldo? It's got his name on the front, and you know, like you're spending the whole time looking for Where's Waldo, and then as soon as you find him, you move on. And that's sort of the way that presenting Jesus was at these churches. And so I'm encouraged that that's happened. But I'm also encouraged to be here because I'm encouraged to be alive. I don't know if I, I told you this, but I almost died two weekends ago. It's a fun story. I can't wait to share it. And every time I share it, every time I share it, it gets more dramatic, of course. So like you're getting a good version, but not as good as what I'll do when I share it in two weeks. So I like to ride bikes, um, and I, I decided I would... Uh, take a ride up to Paris Mountain, which isn't, we don't live too far away from there, and so I biked up to Paris Mountain and back, which sounds impressive, and it is, you should be impressed. Um, so on the way back, uh, I came to a four-way stop, and uh, it just so happened at this moment of this four-way stop intersection, uh, there were vehicles at every place, right, all four places. I was one of those vehicles at the line. But we had that moment of the awkward dance where you're like, who's going first? And I'm like, I'm on a bike. I'm not going first. And so the car in front of me goes, and I'm like, all right. And then the car to the left of me, which would have been, you know, his right. So now we're following the rules. The person to the right is supposed to go. They go. And then it's my turn. So I'm like, my turn. And I put my foot down to pedal, and I get about that far when I notice that this guy doesn't believe in bicycles. They don't exist. And he is cutting this turn like a collision, and in a split-second decision, I jump off my bike. And he, he does not slow down. He, in fact, speeds up, and I'm hitting his car while he's running over my bike, yelling at him like, dude, come on. And then he, boom, drives off. Fortunately, I'm a legalist at heart, and I got his license plate, and I called the police, and they arrested him and charged him, and he went to jail. And I did not die. I did not, I did not get run over or crippled. There, like, so I, when you bike ride, you can get these shoes where you clip in. And if you're a bike rider, you know how that works. You also know that like, it's not easy to unclip sometimes. And I've had quite a number of falls because I can't unclip fast enough. It's fortunate I'm not skilled at clipping in 
Because had I clipped in immediately in that moment, I would have just gone down with the bike. Like, there would have been no way. It was the grace of God that makes me uncoordinated that allows me to survive that moment. So, I'm happy to be here because I'm not crippled or dead. And uh, that makes me feel good, just in general, about being alive. It's a moment that can have sort of like a tie-in to what I'm going to talk about today. I'm treating this as if it's part of a series because it is. It's called the Book of Luke. And really, if you were to name the series, it would be Jesus Lord over fill in the blank because that's what Luke is doing in chapter 8. He's showing you how Jesus has lordship and authority over nature, over spiritual things, over the nations. Like he's, he's trying to give you these stories and examples to help you see that Jesus is really Lord. It means he's in charge, he's in control, he's powerful. But, but in life, or if you would simply do the news this week. Anybody watching the news these days? I don't know if you like to do that or you just do it. It just is part of life. But I've noticed the world is really in a mess right now. Uh, California's on fire. Germany's underwater. Um, COVID is speeding up. Species are going extinct. I mean, like everywhere you turn, there's these intimidating ideas that it can play out into some significant results, right? I mean, like, if I, it's like a, it's, I'm treating it like a corner of my bedroom that I don't want to clean up. All these scary thoughts, because it, it could mean something bad could be on the horizon, and it, that could make me stressed and worried and afraid. And maybe it does you, and maybe it's motivated you to do things like eat less meat or drive better energy-efficient cars or try to recycle or, like, like me, sign up for a subscription for green, sustainable bamboo toilet paper. That's a true fact. You can ask my wife. And she's like, why are you doing this? And I'm like, to save the planet. <laughs> One toilet paper roll at a time. Um, maybe it's not like the headlines, right? Maybe that isn't the things that cause you to worry or get afraid. Maybe it gets much more personal. Your own health sort of a search for employment these days is an odd thing that everybody's hiring but nobody's working but everybody still needs work it's an odd combo maybe you're maybe the more weighty experience of fear and concern over where is Jesus in my life shows up because of past trauma and abuse and you're still trying to sort through I mean, if you're here or you're listening, you're here and listening because you hope Jesus can be something, but maybe you're not sure Jesus is the something that will provide you sort of like the safety in the unpredictability of the world that we live in. And speaking of unpredictability, friends of ours yesterday, they have two little boys. They're young. One of them has special needs. He is, he is a bouncing off the wall, brilliant, fun kid, but he, he, he requires you know, double the effort of control. And so our friends go to the pool with their two sons, and it takes them a few moments. Everything takes a little bit longer because of the nature of their son that they love, that we love. He's a great kid. And, and it takes them a few minutes to set up, and then they're like, well, wh- where's the other one? And they, they see him in the pool, face down, floating. 
And they get him out, and he's lifeless and blue. Talk about a, a storm where you're like, where, where is God? Where, what, what are we going to do? We're, th- this is it. We're doomed. It's over, right? Life often presents scenarios that appear in every sense to be overwhelming and out of control. And those moments cause a good deal of human, I mean, like it, listen, you can be a person of faith. These people, our friends are people of faith. But tell me they just acted like Christians in a painting by Leonardo da Vinci or something like that. Like, no. What do you think that mom's heart is doing in that moment, that dad's heart is doing in that moment? What do you think they're asking, they're, they're struggling with? They're struggling with what we all struggle with, and it's this question, where, where is God in the midst of all these difficult things? This is essentially where I'm going. Two ideas, and this is the next slide. The less we understand or believe about Jesus and his lordship and power, the more we're going to be negatively impacted by these fears that we experience, the the harder time it's going to be. But if we can have some kind of experience where we're growing in our understanding and, and consequentially growing in our belief to understand who Jesus is and what he has done, what he will do, what he promises and what that means for us, the less we will have to fear. It doesn't mean we won't have any fear. It doesn't mean we won't have any worry. It doesn't mean that we won't face hard things and experience the impact of those hard things. But it does mean that there's something tangible and beneficial about wrestling with the reality of Jesus, coming to a point of decision of saying, like, I believe that this is true rather than just my circumstances will define me. And so... My hope is to let this story that happens in Luke 8, 22 through 25, let it be something of an encouragement today for us to be reminded of what is required. So let's pray. Before we, before we read, let's just take a moment to pray. Jesus, there are so many troubles, so many trials, so many difficulties that we encounter that we don't handle all too well. Because, quite frankly, they're overwhelming. They're above our pay grade. We don't know how to do anything more than be what we are, which is weak and not as in control as we want to be and not as certain as we want to be about who holds our future, about who is working all this out about whether or not you're going to work it together for our good and about whether or not good means what we want it to mean or what you want it to mean and how we're afraid of what you might want it to mean, God. It might cost us more than we're sort of able to wrestle with at this moment. God, we, we simply need your grace. We need to encounter you in a refreshing and real way. God, we believe, but help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this story in Luke 22 through 25, 
I'm just going to read and then we'll go back and kind of spend some time making some observations. But this is what Luke shares. Luke's a follower of Jesus. He's doing his research. This story must have been told until he wrote it down and then it became part of something we can access to understand about Jesus. One day, Luke says, he got on a boat with his disciples and said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake. And they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? They were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. Charles Spurgeon had, he he writes so much better than I could ever talk, and he, he captures this moment with this statement. All hearts were happy. All spirits were serene, and the sleep of the master was but a type of the general peace. Nature reposed. The lake was a molten looking glass. Everything was quiet, and yet all on a sudden, as is the custom with these deeply lying inland seas, the storm fiend rushed from his haunt among the mountains, sweeping everything before it. It's like Lord of the Rings. The little vessel was hard put to it. She was well nigh filled with water and ready to sink through the force of the driving hurricane. And then he says this, Thus may our loveliest calms be succeeded by overwhelming storms. Have you been there? I mean, have you been here? You know that the parallel's there, right? I mean, like, there's this beautiful moment. It's serene. It's nice. And then it, storm, near death, cry out to God. There's a little pattern. Let's see if Abby can find the screen with the little four options where it just says the patterns. There are these movements like Jesus Jesus says, let's go out. And so they go out, right? And then it was so peaceful that Jesus fell asleep. So I'm envious. I kind of want this experience, right? And then this awful thing began to happen. Jesus responded. And then Jesus says, after he rebukes the wind, after he calms the storm after he makes all things right, he asks, where's your faith? Now I want to go through, I want to just take you through, make a couple of good observations because that's what preaching does, right? You go through and make some good points. So I have some really good ones because I want all of us to be like Jesus and this passage has some wonderful things that we can look at to be like Jesus. Number one, be like Jesus. Go out on boats with friends. Yeah, that's a curveball. Now, I actually, I actually want to talk about this, and it seems besides the point, but I actually want to take a moment to give you this as sort of like a side sermon within the sermon. You should go out on boats with friends for so many different reasons, in part because I believe it actually reflects the ministry of Jesus. And if you can't afford a boat, that's okay. You could just go out to the lake with friends. And if you can't go out to the lake, man, fill a bucket up with water and stick your feet in it with a friend. I think the pace of Jesus' ministry is way different than the pace of the American life and the pace of the American church. 
I think that we have to, we think to ourselves that we have to be in some type of environment that looks and feels like some type of thing before we're doing something that looks like Jesus. And the truth is, this is not something I thought of, but something who, even this morning, it was sent to me. Sometimes people encounter more of Jesus in the parking lot of the church than they do in the gathering of the building. Because the real ministry of Jesus is part of the regular experience of life. And here is Jesus saying to his companions, his friends, let's go. Let's get, it. Let's get into this boat and let's go to the other side of the lake. Who wants to go on a boat? They're only $450 for rent. I've already looked this up. You can sign up. We can split the cost. It would be totally good. In fact, here's my challenge. If you, if you have the capability, pay for it for someone else and bring them with you. And that would be like Jesus. You say, this isn't great exegetical teaching. I say, that's all right. I got more. Because number two, here's another one. Be like Jesus. Take naps. You should write that down. It's probably more important than you realize. Jesus was able to rest. And I think we need the reminder and the the freedom to rest. I was thinking about this the other day, Matt. Jesus only was in full-time ministry for three years, if you think about it. Maybe we could quit. I mean, like, it's exhausting. I mean, like, it's exhausting. And within that time frame, betrayed, killed. Three, three years, betrayed, killed. Which is about, on average, for my pace, of being betrayed and killed by the people of the church. It's sort of like seven times so far. I did the math, checks out. How did Jesus take a nap? He took a nap because he had a perspective, right? And that perspective was, I'm safe and I'm tired, so I'm going to take a nap. Too many of us don't feel safe, but we feel tired, so we don't rest. And it, we don't rest in part because we don't feel like it's okay. We don't feel like we can, and we've got to do it. We need, God made you human. Jesus, his humanity is on display in the fact that he took a nap. He rested. You should. Some of you are napping right now, and it's, it's the most spiritual thing ever. And I'm so proud of you, so proud of you for napping. I know I'm just playing around. There's an even better one because... If I'm going to say, be like Jesus, go on boat rides with friends, and I'm going to say, be like Jesus, take naps, then I have to say this one, right? Be like Jesus, be woke. Come on, that was a good one. You guys don't get that joke? I'm kidding. It's a joke. But if you want biblical evidence that Jesus was woke, it's right here in Luke 8. Jesus woke. They woke him. So Jesus is woke. Got to work on that delivery of that joke. It doesn't land quite as well as I hoped it would. All right, so we're, I'm, I'm just having fun with that. But you, you can see in this moment, like, I, have you ever been in a storm on a lake? I mean, has anybody ever been on a storm on the water? Okay, John, you've, you've been there. A few people have been there. 
I don't know why I was not more afraid, but it is quite an overwhelming experience to be out on a boat when a powerful storm with lightning and wind and rain and hail, which is what I've experienced on a boat, starts radically transforming the serene peacefulness of your little lake adventure. And, you know, I'm, I'm doing this on a 21st century pontoon boat with my GPS and all other kinds of devices that give me great thoughts of comfort. Can you imagine these guys out in the water and like when it says that they felt like they were perishing, the word is like we're doomed. We're, we're going to be destroyed by this. It is that we're not going to recover. We're not going to make it, which is why they're waking Jesus up because they're like, this joker's going to sleep through this thing. We've got to wake him up. We're going to die. Life can do that. You can see your baby floating in a pool. You can almost get run over by a car. You could have traumatic events where you lose your job or the person that you entrusted your life to betrays you in such a harmful way that you don't know if you're going to recover from it. And you feel, we can feel, we do feel this experience of perishing, like we're not going to make it. And I think it's right that we cry out to God. The, the story would not be correct to say, like, are you suggesting that Jesus is asleep and we need to wake him up? No, not, I'm not saying that. I think Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, fully awake, doesn't need to sleep anymore because of who he is and what he's done. He's resurrected. He's not in need of rest in the same way that we are because his humanness is gone and he's now in a new transformed state, a spiritual state that we also will get to participate in that somehow is both physical and spiritual. I don't know how all that works, but I don't, I don't think Jesus is just napping when you're going through hard things. If anything, the concept of Jesus is napping in your own heart. You, you need to wake Jesus up in your own heart in those moments which is admittedly difficult. Like, I would never in the moment of trauma press hard on, you're just not believing in Jesus enough. I would, because legitimate trauma is legitimately traumatic and we ought to give it room to be what it is because it is what it is. You let people have the experience of their emotional breakdown because it's necessary Interjecting too quickly with spiritual stuff, you just become weird. Honestly, just give them space. Let them calm down. Weep with those who weep, right? Just walk with them through it. And then bring them back around to seeing Jesus. The real be like Jesus, the only one that really matters. The other ones are just fun. The real be like Jesus moment is to respond with faith in his God-given power. And the truth is, even though we're not Jesus, Jesus is with us, and so his power is with us, his favor was, is with us, his promise of working all things together for our good is with us, and if we're to be like Jesus in any way in these moments where the storm comes and things get hard, the way we're like Jesus is to rest in who he is, what he's done, and what that means for me and you.
to have the increased reminder of the confidence of the provision of God to be for me, not against me, and to be working through the hard thing that I don't like, that I want to pray myself out of, for the sake of his glory and my good. When I think of these kind of moments and I think about sort of like the super hardship stuff, I think of Job. Because Job faced probably more suffering than than me and you, though I'm confident they're modern day rivals of suffering that would put Job to shame. But Job wrestling with the reality of why God had done all that God allowed to do to take him from this status of peace into this storm where he loses his family, where he loses his health, where he begins to maybe even feel like he's losing his mind and losing his faith. God answers Job out of the storm. It's interesting. And I would love to just take an extra 20 minutes to read all that's in there, but I'm not. I'm just going to start, and I'll stop when I feel like it. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Which is what I say as a parent to my children. I'm just kidding. It's a fantastic phrase, though. Who's talking without knowing what they're talking about? says God to Job. Dressed for action like a man, I'll question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched out the line? On what were its foundations sunk? Who laid its cornerstones? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of of God shouted for joy. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth out of the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, I prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors. I said, thus far you shall come and no farther, and here your proud waves be stayed. He goes on. He's basically saying, I am God. (laughs) Do you think I don't know what I'm doing? I'm God. That's God's answer to Job. I am God. I got this. I know what I'm doing. Now, sometimes we do not like what God is doing. Which is why we kind of benefit from a community of faith and a gathering of faith for some orientation in the midst of storms that we would not like to be in. The disciples, they didn't like to be in the storm. Job didn't like to be in the storm. They wanted out. It it was unwanted. It was unhelpful. How does this make sense? Let me read this, another moment from Spurgeon, shining light on where we're at in this moment. This is... What he's going to do here is set up sort of a difference between a thought of fate and a thought of of predestination, which is sort of like another word for God's sovereignty, if you will. Uh, And I have a little slide for that, if you want to pull that up, just have that up there. 
Brethren, brethren, most of us now present believe in predestination. I hope that's true. I don't know if it is. Matt, I'm sorry if I've opened a can of worms and you have to solve that problem. It's going to be okay. They can talk to me. It can be my fault. But it's a Bible word, and they can look it up in the Bible and get a definition, and then they can wrestle with God and figure out, okay. But that's what Spurgeon says. All right, so most of us now present believe in predestination. And are persuaded that the Lord worketh everything according to the counsel of his will. We believe that all things, great and small, are fixed in his eternal purpose and will surely be as they are ordained. This doctrine becomes the lurking place of a temptation. We gaze upon the ponderous wheels of predestination in their awful revolutions and fear that they will grind us to powder. In the forebodings of our trouble, we fear that we may be entangled in the terrible machinery, and that, as it will not pause for our crying out, will ultimately rend us to pieces. But we ought to reflect that there is no such thing as blind fate. Predestination is a far different thing. Fate is is a blind man who rushes madly on because he must. Predestination is full of eyes and proceeds in one line because it is the best path which could be taken. Fate is a tyrant declaring that such a thing shall be because he wills it. Predestination is a father ordering all things for the good of his household. God hath his purpose and his way. His purposes are both for his own glory and for the good of his people. Who among us would wish the Lord to turn aside from his holy and gracious designs? He has ordained the best. Would we have him vary? He hath determined all things wisely. Would we have him determined otherwise? So when it comes down to this, Our experience in life, the highs and the lows, the things we enjoy and want and the things that we dread and hate, the things that we wish would not be, it all falls under a banner of purpose for the glory of God and for the good of us. And I join with you when you put on the table circumstances that seem irreconcilably evil and disastrous and unwanted, I join you in going, I don't know why that is supposedly going to work out together for your good, our good. I join you in that. But I don't know if that necessarily means I'm defaulting on my faith in God. What I'm banking on is unseen which happens to be exactly part of a definition of faith. I don't see how that awful thing is supposed to work itself out for our good. I'm just trusting with faith that it does. I'm I'm saying that this is a better way to live. Living with the hope that God can, God will, and God has preordained all circumstances for our good and for his glory. That's what I choose to do. I think many people may look at this passage and kind of develop a question like, what, 
What the disciples do, right? Like that's, I think that's the next slide. What, what are the disciples doing here? What are they doing? Well, they call out to Jesus, they, they let him respond, and they marvel at his power. And, and if we're not careful in observing and thinking through, this becomes the pattern that we teach people and tell people to do. Just call out to Jesus, let him respond, and he's going to show his power. And I mean, like maybe he does. The disciples certainly get the front row seat on a miracle. They're, they're marveling because he, like, he controls the wind and the waves. Who does that? But I'm telling you, we don't always get that front row seat in the midst of the hard thing that we have to go through. And I don't necessarily think this is the pattern. You can do it. I do it. But I don't always get this result as immediately as I want. Because I don't think this is actually the focus point, And I don't think Jesus does either. Because after this is all said and done, what does Jesus ask? He says, Where, where's your faith? That's the question. And that's the question that we need to be reminded of and we need to be challenged with. We don't need to be too quick to pat ourselves on the back and say, my faith is top notch. Our our faith, perhaps, may only be as strong and effective as our weakest moment. How quickly will you lose faith today, this week? Why Why? Well, one reason why is because life is hard. Scary. Presenting a a constant barrage of headlines that make us go, good gracious, are we going to make it? Are we going to survive this? Should I go get more bread and milk? I mean, that's that's our pattern, right? It's not easy. It You might even say it's impossible. Especially if it's just up to us, but good thing it's not up to us because Scripture tells us that faith is a gift from God. So if you say, I don't have great faith, the good news is, well, you can't generate it, so quit trying. You can ask for it, and perhaps God will give it to you. Paul said that faith comes by hearing of the word of Christ. Meaning, the more we get to know the logos of the Messiah, the real purposefulness of the Messiah, that's the gospel. The more we hear the gospel, the more we can move into faith. So if you want better faith to navigate the hard things, the pathway into it is not through your own works, but by meditating on the work of Jesus. By seeing what he's done and letting that good news become the the reverberation of truth for your soul where you go, if God loves me so much that he would do that, then he's going to fix this too. He's going to fix this storm. My friends who sat poolside with a blue lifeless child in total panic... were brought to great relief after CPR revived the child. Took him to the emergency room, had to do x-rays, 24-hour surveillance. On the way home from the hospital, he says, can we go back to the pool? (laughs) Faith like a child, huh? Faith like a child. 
If that, if that was my a kid, be like, no, we canceled our pool membership for life. We're done. Mm. I don't have time to do it. But if you want to watch someone, it's, a, it's such a fun thing. Let me try to talk to some of the young people in the room. You would really enjoy reading Acts 27. It is such a fun chapter. Please read it. Acts 27 this afternoon. It'll be entertaining. It'll take you 10 minutes to read. It's a really fun chapter. Read Acts 27. And in it, you're going to hear the story of a man named Paul who had progressively grown his under, in his understanding of who Jesus is. And Paul's whole life is filled with hard things. He's constantly being bombarded by these unwanted circumstances. And in Acts 27, Paul also gets into a boat. And a storm comes upon him. And Paul handles it with this incredible poise. He, he goes from being a prisoner to instructing the entire crew of the boat and the, the guards and soldiers who are trying to make him be a prisoner. Paul, Paul's the only one. He's the prisoner on the boat in the midst of a storm who stands up and is like, this is what we're going to do. Nobody gets off this boat. If they do, we're all going to die. Stay on the... I mean, like, it doesn't even make sense. Read Acts 27. You're going to love this story. What gives Paul that kind of faith? It might have had something to do with his encounter with Jesus and his 14 years of study to make sure that he was building his life on a rock-solid foundation of truth. I'm not saying I don't think... Paul was maybe frightened or worried at any point in his life. He probably was. There was moments where he didn't want to go through what he was going through. But something inside of Paul had awakened to the reality that God's glory and our good are tied together in such a way that he will not let one circumstance of our life go without benefit. So if you have encountered the bad and... Chances are you have. Chances are you probably will if you haven't already. You are going to face hard things because humanity, life, is filled with hard things. And it is unfortunate, it is unwanted, but it is not uncommon. And one thing above all else becomes functionally helpful. It is confidence in Jesus' lordship. He is in control. He has a plan. It will work out. You may not ever get the answer to that question in this life, but I have faith that one day I will. I, can, I don't have time. I need to wrap up. I could tell you repeatedly numbers of things that are unwanted circumstances currently in my life that I wish were not that way and that I don't understand. I don't know how God's going to fix this. I don't know how this works out for his glory and my good, our good. Like, I, I don't know. But I'm, I believe, and I'm asking God, help my unbelief. And that's, that's a good place to be. Keep believing and keep asking God to help with your unbelief. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that your, your kindness leads us to repentance. It's when we experience your grace that we begin to say, God, you're good and I trust you. So for those of us here today who've 
who have faced or who are facing circumstances that seem beyond redemption, beyond fixing, beyond being anything more than uncomfortable and disappointing. God, we pray for a special gift of peace for them. We pray for grace to flood their heart and soul and for God for you to reveal Maybe not even in a way that makes sense. Perhaps it would just be peace that passes understanding. You would just give them a peace. And God, if, if we find ourselves today in a circumstance where we're free from those fears, free from those worries, free from that trauma, God, give us the gift of encouragement to those who are weak, to those who are suffering, to those who are crying out, God, why are you forsaking me? Help us to see how much we need one another and we benefit from one another by being part of the body of Christ. We pray that this day, this hour together, God, that it honors you and that it causes us to trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.